right. Good morning. Wonder if uh, if if news was given this week that uh, the government has passed a new policy on taxes, and seventy percent of us are going to experience the goodness of that. There would be certainly a question in the air, right? The question would be, well, who are the beneficiaries? What, what are the requirements of that? I want to make sure I'm on the good side of that because if 70% are receiving the goodness, 30% aren't. And so what are those requirements so that I know that I am a beneficiary of that? Or if uh, on opening day, as the brewers have that, I guess in a couple months here, if they said uh, for 10,000 uh, fans, uh, 10,000 fans will receive an autographed baseball by the whole team. There would be a question in the air. Well, what do I need to, to do to make sure I'm a beneficiary of that? How, how do you distinguish who is going to be a beneficiary of that autographed baseball? Or if you didn't know this, uh, this past fall, every Friday you could go to Qdoba and get free chips and guac. Or you couldn't, depending. You had to do something. You had to wear green and gold for Packers. Anyhow, that was the only way you could get it. That was the requirement in order to be the beneficiary of uh, that great goodness of chips and guac. So we're in a, the place of Mark, where Mark makes a little bit of a shift here. Uh, we're in the opening chapter, verses 1 to 13. He's been uh, talking about John the Baptist especially, that John the Baptist is the forerunner proclaiming that God is coming. God's visitation is here. John the Baptist being the forerunner. He's been announcing this, that when God comes, he's going to bring a purging, and he's going to bring a restoration. God's kingdom is going to come. And now we see a little bit of a shift. Uh, our scene now, verse 14, opens. John, John is arrested. So now he's going to shift gears and talk about Jesus' actual ministry. But there's this question in the air. There's actually two of them, really. What's this kingdom going to look like? We have a little bit of a picture. It's going to be a purging and a restoration, especially from that Malachi passage that he quotes from. So what's the, what's the kingdom going to look like? But then also, who are the beneficiaries? Who is this kingdom going to be good news for? Because obviously if it's bringing purging and restoration, it's going to be bad news for some and good news for others. So who are the beneficiaries? And we're going to see in our passage what those requirements are to be beneficiaries of the kingdom. We'll walk through it quite simply. First, the announcement of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. Second, the requirements of the kingdom are declared. And then we actually see the requirements of the kingdom demonstrated. So that's how we'll walk through them. Uh, first is the announcement. We'll read it again, for, verse 14 to the beginning of verse uh, 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. We'll pause there in mid uh, short sermon by Jesus there just to make sure we hear kind of what is going on. A couple of words to kind of even spot right at the beginning there. Look at uh, proclaiming. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Uh, this, this is uh, Mark's first way of describing what Jesus' ministry is about. It's a proclamation ministry. Oftentimes we think of Jesus' ministry about miracles and things like that, which is, is true. We'll see some miracles along the way. But primarily, he's here to preach. In fact, we'll see later uh, in, in a few weeks where, where the, all, all the crowds are looking for Jesus. The disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, everybody's looking for you. And he says, 
Oh, well, great. Well, let's go over here because I came to preach to them too. Jesus is about a preaching ministry, and even a lot of the miracles that we'll see throughout the book are actually meant to proclaim something. And you'll see a lot of them function uh, symbolically, not for the miracle themselves, but what they actually represent and the message that Jesus is bringing. Jesus comes with a message, a proclamation. Well, what is the proclamation? Mark tells us. He comes to bring a message about the gospel of God. And remember, we dealt with that a couple weeks ago, the good news of God. He's bringing a message of the good news of God, which, which is what? Well, then he tells us the time is at hand, or the, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So the good news of God is the kingdom of God. Now, kingdom of God, just so we do a little bit of work on that, that's a, uh, it's a very important phrase to, to grasp what is going on here. Uh, a very, uh, well, I guess depending on, famous to some people, I guess, Graham Goldsworthy popularized this idea of uh, the kingdom of God is the very heartbeat of uh, of, of the, all of scriptures. You can sum up all of scripture as the message of the kingdom of God. And he summarized the kingdom of God like this, that the king, kingdom of God is when you have three components. You have God's people who are living in God's place and they're living under God's rule. And every time you have God's people who are living in God's place and living underneath God's rule, they always experiencing something fabulous. It's God's blessing. And those are the components that that makes up the kingdom of God. And there you see it right in the opening chapters of the Bible, right? The, the Garden of Eden. You have God's people who are Adam and Eve in God's place, which is the Garden of Eden. Under God's rule, which is God's good word to you may eat of everything except for this, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And every time you have God's people in God's place under God's rule, they always experience God's blessing. And what do you see Adam and Eve experience? God walking with them in the cool of the day. I mean, it's glorious. This is the kingdom of God as it is meant to be. It's the perfect picture of the kingdom of God. And you know the, the story by Genesis 3. Sin enters into the world. And what happens? They're kicked out of the kingdom of God at the end of the chapter. That's the, one of the saddest places of Scripture. At the end of chapter 3, where he, he stresses this, he drove the man and woman out of the garden. And the rest of the Bible, then, is the story of God restoring the kingdom to bring God's people back into God's place where they joyfully live under God's rule, and every time God's people are in God's place under God's rule, they experience God's blessing. And so this phrase here, the kingdom of God, has massive theological implications. Jesus comes saying, the kingdom of God is now here. The time is fulfilled, he says. Now you can think of the time being fulfilled, I mean, on one sense you could say, well, the time is fulfilled because John the Baptist has been arrested. He announced, he announced the kingdom, and now the kingdom is here. But I don't think that's simply what's going on. Jesus here is getting at what has been promised long ago, what's been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3, is now here. It's now here because I am here. The king is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. You might say it, uh, you, might, you could almost uh, translate it saying, the epic time of history is here. What everybody's been waiting for, the longing, the waiting for sin to be fixed, for your enemies to be crushed, for God's visitation to restore all things, to make all wrong things back to good. It's now here. Now, it's going to unfold a little bit different than they expect. There's going to be an already not yet not yetness to the kingdom. But nonetheless, the king is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, brothers and sisters, this, this 
is just Jesus' first claim right in the book. This is a present reality. The kingdom of God has come. And as you see at the end of Matthew, right before Jesus ascends to glory, he says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, right? All authority has been given to me. I am the king. I rule over all nations. And if you hear nothing else today, that would be worth hearing. As you go out into the week, Jesus is king. And he's reigning today. This is, this is as much a, a spiritual uh, message as it is a political message. Yes, there are earthly kings, but the true king is Christ Jesus. God's kingdom has come. The president of the United States today is President Joe Biden. You may not like that. You may like that. You may find that comforting. You may find that unnerving. But regardless of what you think of it, it does not change the reality. He is the president today. And whether or not you look at your life today, this week, as if Jesus seems like he's the king, that doesn't change the reality of it. Jesus Christ is the king today. And he will be tomorrow. You don't have to question that. You don't have to wonder. And no circumstances, regardless of what they appear, will ever thwart that message. Jesus is king. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king has come. So that's the first announcement. Uh, for, some of the, for some people, that should be a great warning because you will face this king one day. And if you're not on the good side of the king, you will face trouble. You will experience his judgment. Which then begs the question, well, who is on the good side? Who is, who is the kingdom of God good news for? And if you saw the word gospel there twice in verse, uh, once in verse 14 and once in verse 15, gospel again meaning good news. Jesus brought a message of the good news of God about the, the good news. And he says, believe in the good news. The kingdom of God is good news, but good news for who? Well, Jesus then gives the requirements or the beneficiaries of the kingdom in the second half of verse 15. You see it there. This is the idea of, uh, therefore, therefore, repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the good news. Those are the, the people who will be the beneficiaries of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is good news for those who repent and believe. Repent is a word that, uh, that means to turn, right? It's, it's not necessary. Uh, it's not necessarily highlighting the idea of an emotion, although that, that certainly could be the case, a sorrow. But it's more focused, focuses on the actual turning. So if you're, you know, you're driving up 90, I-94 here and you're, you're uh, getting up to the Marquette Interchange and you're wanting to, to go to the west to, to go towards Miller Park, but you're distracted or GPS doesn't make sense and you end up still going north and you're starting to go up towards... Green Bay, GPS starts recalculating, and maybe she comes on the loudspeaker, tells you you're going the wrong way, recalculating. And what do you do as the driver? You, you first make a, a mental note, right? You first recognize what I am doing is wrong. I want to go over there. So you first recognize it mentally, but repentance is not simply just recognizing something. That's not actually turning. That's just, that's just confessing what you did was wrong. 
I, I'm on the wrong place. But it's actually now getting off the ramp, turning around, and heading the right direction. Repentance includes both of those. It's first a recognition that what I'm doing is wrong, and I'm going to turn and pursue the other way. Now, it might not always be perfect, or like you'll never fail again, but it's this actual pursuit in the heart to turn and come underneath something else. And so Jesus here then saying, repent, turn from your, your old ways or your ways of going against God's kingdom and turn, first recognize it, confess it, and then turn and actually obey the king. Come underneath the wing of the king. The king will now be the one in charge. So it's repent to turn, and then he says also to believe. Right? Believe, uh, which sounds like that's sort of obvious. Right? What does it mean to believe? Well, it means to, to recognize that, some, that something is true, but then also worthy of your trust. Right? It's one thing to say that you think something is true. It's another thing to actually trust it. Right? Uh, so, I mean, a very common example that's often given is a plane. Like you can, you can say, I believe the plane will, I, I need to get to Florida next week. I believe the plane can get me there. To, to actually believe and to trust is actually get on the plane, right? And so Jesus here then saying, this, this is the requirement to be a beneficiary of this good kingdom of God that's coming. To turn from your ways, believe the good news of the king coming to set up his kingdom and trust him. Trust him alone. In, in, in one way, this, what Jesus is doing, though, it's, it's, it's not any sort of like a neutral option that he's giving. You, you might think of it a little bit like, a, a, say, a general walks into, I mean, it's, it's a little bit harder in our country because it's so big, but let's say just our city. A general walks in and, into our city and from a neighboring country and says, the city is now controlled by our kingdom. You are not, you are not in control anymore. This is our kingdom. Now, your responsibility is to lay down your arms, pay us this much money, do A, B, and C, and things will go well for you. Right? This, this is Jesus coming in and saying, hey, the king is now here. This is a massive reality. And then to, to tell us how to actually be a part of the, a part of the, the kingdom is quite startling. Because you might actually think that he would say, Okay, all, all of the people who are doing quite well in society, the powerful people, you can be a part of my kingdom. All the riffraff, I want over there. The, the requirements of the kingdom aren't to be a part of a social status. It's not to be a certain age. It's not to be a certain race. It's not to be born into a certain group, the Jews or the Gentiles. It's not to have a certain intellect. It's not to have a certain type of personality. It's to turn from your ways and come underneath the authority of Christ. It's to repent and believe. So that's the first part, the announcement of the kingdom of God, then the requirements that are declared for becoming a beneficiary of the kingdom. Now we have the, this next scene that, that seems quite straightforward. The question I want to ask is, is, how does this next scene relate to the announcement that Jesus brings? So let's read it again, uh, verses 16 to 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately 
they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So the question is, how, how does this scene, the calling of the disciples, function in the passage? How does it relate to this announcement of the kingdom of God and repent and believe? And I think you could frame it this way, that the, that the, the calling of the disciples is actually demonstrating what it looks like to repent and believe. Or more properly, uh, you would say that the fruits of true repentance and the fruits of true belief look something like this on the ground. So this is, you might call this the requirements of the kingdom of God are demonstrated, or the fruits of the requirements are demonstrated. And what we see demonstrated is a total allegiance to the king. It's not necessarily the actual acts of, like, we're all supposed to become fishermen, or first be fishermen, so that we can be called away from fishing to go fish for men. That's not the issue. The point is that that Jesus comes and brings a radical command to them and it's a full-on, total allegiance. They are no longer king of their domain. The king is Jesus. So when Jesus gives a command, they full-heartedly obey, holding nothing back. Nothing is off limits. Their demands of life, their desires of life, their dreams of life, they count now, now put at the feet of the king. Say, whatever you want, we will do. Seems to me that, that Mark's trying to give an indication what repentance and belief looks like is this because if we just say repent and believe, that's sort of vague, right? It's like we can kind of put our own definition on that. It's like, well, you know, if I show up to services or you know, I give some money and or if I'm mostly good through the week or something, we just we just leave that vague. But Mark wants to put a picture on this that this this means total allegiance. Whatever Christ asks of you, that's what re- true repentance, true faith actually looks like. You hold nothing. Back. You are not in the driver's seat any longer. You've taken the keys, you've handed them to the Christ, and you are not in the back seat. The, the stories or the scenes are actually quite simple, but they're quite amazing. I mean, first we meet Peter and Simon, and they're out fishing. And these fishing nets, I actually saw something that would be like this net uh, for the first time last year in the Gulf of uh, the, on the Gulf side in, in Florida, some, some guy fishing off the pier with one of these nets. This, would be, this is a large round net. It would have weights on the sides. So you kind of take it, you, you throw the net out, and the, the weights are going to pull the net down to the, to the floor of the, of the ocean there, or the sea. And then you have a, a, some sort of a rope, and you pull it, and it's going to squeeze the, the net together, and hopefully there's some fish in there, right? And so that's what Peter and Simon are doing. They're, they're casting their nets. They're fishermen. That's what they do. Oftentimes they would do this at night so the fish don't see the net, but for whatever reason they're, they're doing it during the day here. And they're, they're fishing. And wouldn't you know it, but Jesus actually says, hey, leave that stuff and now come and follow me. Fishing was actually uh, a fairly good uh, trade to be in. Uh, the Sea of Galilee had many, many fish, uh, so you could make a pretty decent living actually fishing. It's uh, not necessarily like higher on, on scholarship, but it was, it was a very good trade. So you might think of something like, uh, like plumbing and welding or something like in our culture now. Like if, if you have a plumbing business, that, that's just a really good, solid business, right? Or welding. And so this is Jesus walking into the, 
the guy welding, he owns his own business, and he's fixing some pipes, and he says, hey, you now drop those welding tools. You will no longer be fixing pipes in homes anymore. You will be fixing the pipes of the hearts of men. Come, leave it all and follow me, right? <laughs> it's, it's saying, leave it all. Like, you come, and I'm going to put you to different work. But, but nonetheless, Peter actually, they, and, and Simon, or Peter and Andrew, they leave everything. They just leave it. Similarly, when uh, J- James and John, uh, their, their enterprise is actually done, doing even better. So we, we actually meet their dad, Zebedee, here. This is Zebedee's boat. They have a quite lucrative business here. If you notice at the very end, when they actually leave everything and follow Jesus, uh, they leave their dad, their father Zebedee, in the boat. Look what it says at the end of verse 20. With the hired servants. So they actually have employees. They, they have a good enterprise here. So James and John, I mean, they're going to be the heirs of this. So they're not only well cared for now, but they got to, I mean, they, they're, they're kind of set, right? I mean, this is, this is Pops owning a, a nice business, and we're going to inherit this. And yet Jesus comes along. They're just mending the nets. They're, you know, they're fixing it from, from the night, getting ready for the next time to go out, and they're fixing the nets, and here he comes, and it's that, that, the voice the authority of that man said to leave everything, and they left. They left it all. I mean, it's just quite stunning to really think about. One of the one of the questions I, I like to think through sometimes, when I'm, especially when reading narrative, you got to you know, I, I don't know for sure what how this would work, but you ask a question of something along the along the lines of like, if you could go home with somebody in the audience or somebody in the story. Well, and you listen to them tell the people. When they get home, they're going to tell this story to family. They, they, these guys have families. Peter's married. He's got a mother-in-law that lives with them. He's going to go home at some point and tell the story of what happened for the day. And I like to try to think through, okay, what, what did Peter say when he got home? Now, I don't know, but I can try, just try to imagine. He sits down for dinner with his mother-in-law and his wife and... Maybe they have kids, I don't know. But his wife at some point maybe asked him, hey, honey, how'd work go today? How how many fish did you get? Oh, well, uh, I should tell you about that. Uh, I didn't get any fish today. Oh, it was a a hard catch? Well, not exactly. I kind of quit today. I just left my nets. Well, this man who said he's, he's Messiah came and told me to leave it and, and follow him. So that's what I'm going to do. Okay. You know, again, I don't know how that conversation went, but it, you just try to stop and think, like, what in the world happened there? And then how do they go and explain this there? This is a massive reality that they're experiencing Or one of the questions I'd actually rather do is I'd love to hear Peter tell this story decades later. Like 20, 30, 40 years. You know, Mark, uh, if you remember from the intro sermon, Mark most likely ran with Peter for a while. He probably knew John. John outlived all the other apostles. So Mark probably knew both of these men, Peter and John. And I'm, I'm assuming he heard this story several times. You know, sometimes when people think back on certain parts of life, there's that twinkle in their eye when they, they tell a story, you know? 
So if you ask me about how I met Danica, there's, there's certain details that I would probably tell all the time. You know, how, how the first time I saw her, there was something about her eyes that just captured me. And I wasn't a follower of Jesus at the time. I, I didn't even know her, but I came home and I told my roommates, hey, I just met the woman I'm going to marry. And it was a joke by them for the, for the next year because I'd never even talked to her. And then I came to faith, lo and behold, and I walk, in walk, uh, I walk into a, a Christian fellowship meeting at the university, and there she is. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then our group went to Culver's that night, and somebody just happened to have a spot open in their car, a.k.a. Danica, and somebody needed a ride, a.k.a. me. And I just happened to find myself in her car. We went and you know got Culver's for the night. And how when she would come over to our, my apartment as we were like learning each other and becoming friends and such. And I would, she would buzz the, 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 the door and I would buzz her in and I'd, I'd come outside and I'd stand up on the steps and she would open the door and like run up the steps. So there's, there's these moments that you can just put yourself in. They're glorious moments. Now these 20 years have been very difficult in marriage, but I wouldn't trade them for anything. And those early moments are precious in my heart. Or my conversion story, some of you have heard, there's, there's certain details that are always going to be told, right? I was, I was at an evening service, uh, that it was an evening baptism, and suddenly God opened my eyes, realizing I am going to face God on Judgment Day, and I need an answer, and Jesus is the only one that, that makes sense. I need a Savior, I need someone to pay the penalty for my sin, so I need to trust in Him alone for salvation, and I remember driving home all, all that whole way home, like confessing, yes, I do trust you, Lord, because I was afraid the first time didn't work, and I just wanted to make sure it was right. You know, not, that's not how it works, but that's, I, was, I was nervous. I just really wanted to be, yes, I do trust you, Lord. And then I was, li- I was living with some, some guys that um, it was just a, we were wild drinking stuff, and uh, I, I was on my way home, I stopped, I picked up my 12-pack for the night, I opened the door to our apartment, I said, you guys, I just got saved, let's party. And we all got drunk to me being a Christian that night. Now that, God was merciful for, on me. He was so merciful, so gracious. And there's these moments that I, I remember, and I, I mean, walking with Jesus this, this last 20, 22 years or whatever it's been, it's been very difficult. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. I remember those early moments. And I, I, can, I can picture Peter telling this story. You know, how he's, he's fishing one day. And he, he, Peter, Peter actually does know who, who this man is, as the other gospel writers tell it. But Jesus comes along and he calls me by name. And he says, come follow me. The kingdom of God is here. I'm going to make all wrong things right again. Come, I'm the king. And Peter, I would just assume, would just tell the story with this twinkle in his eye and just say, you know, I've seen, I, I have friends that were killed for the gospel, for, the, for this man. I, Jesus told me that I was going to be killed for the faith, which I don't know when it's coming, but it's going to happen. Oh, it's been a hard, hard years. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. Friend, this king is worth following. I did it joyfully. Oh, it's extremely difficult. But this king is worth giving your life for, for living and dying for. 
And this, I, I think Mark is trying to demonstrate, what, what is real repentance and faith? Is it simply being able to say a couple of things once in a while? No, it's saying, Christ, you are mine. I will follow you for my full allegiance. And this isn't a one-time deal. This is, this is an ongoing thing. Now, brothers and sisters, the experience of true repentance and faith or this total allegiance, I mean, it, I'd like to tell you that it's just gloriously happy all the time. But it's not. It's, there's, there's sort of like two sides of, of a coin here. Right? Throughout your life, to follow Christ, to give total allegiance, will mean loss. I mean, it meant loss for Peter and James and John right here. And later in the story, they, they, they come to Jesus and they say, well, what, what about us? Like, we've left everything. There's loss in following Christ. It might mean you lose friendships. It might mean you lose you know, parts of, or a, a nice career or job advancements. There can be a lot of loss in following Christ. But oh, how much gain there is. Jesus responds to them when they say, oh, we've left everything. What, what, do, we, what do we get out of this? And Jesus responds and says, and for anybody who leaves mother or father or land for me and for the sake of the gospel, you will gain so much more. You will have it all in return tenfold, right? You will have mother and father, and he says, and persecution in this life. So yes, there is great loss, but oh, how much gain there is. Giving total allegiance to Jesus uh, is it's incremental in one way, but yet it's comprehensive. Incremental meaning uh, Christ, you know, the longer you walk with Christ, the more he's going to reveal of just how much you hold back, right? We do. In God's kindness, he doesn't reveal all of your sin to you at once, right? It's incremental. Like, there are, there are things of you today, that, ways that you sin against others, that you are not actually aware of. Now, somebody sitting next to you probably is, and even if they told you, it wouldn't even make sense to you. God in his kindness slowly reveals that to you. You were like, like an onion, right? Layer by layer, peeling us apart. So it's incremental, and yet it's comprehensive at the same, same time. Meaning that when Christ says, I want all of you, it's it's. It is all of us, even though I, I'm realizing there's, I, there's parts I'm holding back and even I'm not even aware of. But yet, at the same time, my, from our experience, vantage point, horizontally, it is everything. As Christ reveals it, we offer ourselves. So it's our whole self. And that's why walking with Christ is sometimes so scary. The reason why we hold back is because we're afraid that sometimes Jesus might actually ask of us too much. Right? Too much of our time, too much of our finances, too much of us. Like We want to hold on to reputation. We want to hold on to all sorts of stuff. And it's scary. Because what, what's next? What's this week? You know, I mean, how many times have you probably talked to someone and you say, you know, you, you've maybe said to yourself, I've certainly said it. I'm afraid to pray a prayer or something like, Jesus, you can have whatever you want. Whatever you call me to, to do, I will do. I hold nothing back. Do you like praying that? I want to pray like that, but I'm afraid. Because I'm afraid of what he'll do. Because I'm a little suspicious of this king. 
And yet, when we do it, it's exhilarating. It's so freeing. It's enslaving to live with holding things back. Because we are not good kings. And it is freeing to give ourselves wholly and forever to this king. It's unpredictable to follow this king. We don't know what's going to happen, and yet it is so stabilizing. And that's why I think Peter would look back on this moment and and talk about this moment with a twinkle in his eye. He wouldn't trade it for anything. Following this king produces great joy. So I think that's Mark's simple message for us. The kingdom of God is good news for all who repent and believe as demonstrated by the disciples. The kingdom of God requires total allegiance of its citizens, or better yet, you might say the kingdom of God invites total allegiance of us. Or you might say it even better, the kingdom of God empowers our total allegiance. You know, one of the great things about the gospel is that it, God not only commands us what's good and right, God's commands are good. We're the problem, though. We fail to, to follow through with the commandments. But the gospel comes along, and God actually empowers us toward the commandment. So the way we should hear this is not, I don't think, Jesus, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is, is here, so therefore you must repent and believe. Instead, for those who are God's people, this should land on us and say, the kingdom of God is at hand. And now you are empowered to believe, repent, and follow the king. That's why this is such great news. We fail so quickly, but God comes through with the new covenant and says, I'm going to take out that heart of stone. I'm going to put in the heart of flesh. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and empower you to walk in the goodness of my commands. Brothers and sisters, following the king is great news. It's a great idea. It's a wonderful way to live. Come and die and be free. And then Christ says, I will empower you to do that. Come underneath me. If you've done that, if you've given your heart to Christ, we look back and say, Christ, the only reason I'm here is because of your kindness to us. And so as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we remember, God, we are only following you because of your grace to us, both in Christ dying and opening up the kingdom of God to us, and then empowering us to actually embrace, to repent and believe. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, the, the table is open to all who truly have repented and believe and are in the process of doing that. If you're sitting here t- today and saying, yes, Lord Jesus, total allegiance is what I want to offer you. I don't have much, but I give it all to you. Then the table is open to you. If you're, if you're here today and you, you are not a follower of Christ, offering full allegiance to him, um, then we ask that you not partake. But if you would, uh, come forward, grab the elements, and return to your seats, and we will partake together. Brothers and sisters, the great problem keeping us from the kingdom of God, as demonstrated in Genesis 3, was our sin, our rebellion against God, our refusal to come underneath the rule of the king. There's no reason why we should be beneficiaries of the king, of the kingdom of God. But the broken body of Christ has paid the penalty and opened the way. We have full access now into the king's throne. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you.
We are called to hold nothing back but to follow Christ with everything we have. It's excruciatingly, excruciatingly painful and scary at times, yet life-giving. May God grant us the power to do that this week. God has promised that the new covenant, inaugurated by the blood of Christ, gives us that power. May we experience it and trust him this week, step by step, by moment by moment. The Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.